So, Bella, what have you been doing for the last six months? <clears throat> so, I just came back not that long ago from uh, Newcastle, which is where I did six months DTS, so di- discipleship training, which Emma Turner was also doing. Um, so, practically, if you guys haven't heard much about it, it's three months of lectures and then roughly about three months of outreach. So, we have 12 weeks of Um, different lectures with different teachers on 12 different topics and then um, I had the opportunity to choose um, we had two different outreach locations um, which was one was Asian which was the Philippines and the Papua New Guinea and then we had a European outreach which was France and Germany and I felt called by God to go to France and Germany so so uh Tell me first about the lecture stage. So what was that like and what did God teach you through that? Um, There's no simple way to put it. God literally wrecked me (laughs) in the best of ways possible Um, because um, I went in really not knowing um, what God sounded like. I went in with a, um, I guess you could say a, a clean slate, but also 17 years of contradictory life that I'd been living um and that's the only way I knew how to live and so going in um it was incredible because I felt so at home and I felt so supported and I knew that it was going to be a place where I grew but it was also um filled with uh lots of tough challenges every day is like church but 24 hours And it's just soul-seeking stuff. So it's not just, oh, we're just going to read the Bible and take notes and forget about it. Like we've got, um, you just feel motivated to go home and go to your room with four other people. There's not really alone time. But (laughs) um, it for me, lecture phase, um, God really um, showed me the importance of his love and his love started to mean more in my life. And that's such... um, a simple thing but a massive thing that completely transformed my life so um yeah it was 12 different lectures um uh 12 yeah different um topics with 12 different speakers so it's not just people coming in and um just you know reading the bible and leaving but it's people coming in with their own personal testimonies of how god's grown them in a particular area of their life and we had a chance to um you know put that into practice every week and honestly it it was incredible because i started to be able to recognize god's voice in my life and he helped me recognize the lies from the truths in my head and um yeah it was something that completely just transformed my life Good. So uh, then from the three months there, you went to Europe. Tell me, what were you doing there and how did God show up? Yeah. Um, so Europe was my first ever missions trip. Um, so it was a big step for me and I had a lot of um, unconscious pressure on myself. And um, so I went. we went to Paris for one month first and then we went to Germany for another month. And so in Paris, we went straight into the ministry. We started um, doing gospel-based performances in festivals on the streets and, um, and you know, crazy beautiful cities. And um, we got to work at soup kitchens. We got to do um, our testimonies in front of the Eiffel Tower. We did Muslim ministry. Um, we did... Um, 
in there was a main main square that um, we had to go to after Muslim ministry every day for two weeks, and um, we decided to do free manicures. So that was a creative way that we thought God was really leading us to be able to actually have time and sit with people, to be able to pray for them, to get words for them, um, to be able to listen to their stories because Paris is such a crazy, busy city. And so we thought, why not, you know, have a free manicure stand and have, you know, we had heaps and heaps of women come up to us and just open up. And it's amazing how much you can get out of 15 minutes with sitting down and intentionally pouring out into them. And sometimes people come up and pour into us. So it was like um, just a refilling and then pouring out on other people. So, um, yeah, that was France and then Germany we worked um, at the Salvation Army and we worked um, in Wittenberg for two weeks which is where the German Reformation happened with Martin Luther and we stayed in that town and we got to be a part of um, um, working at a Bible museum and a lot of the time for every single day we did worship on the street that uh, for those two weeks and that was an incredible time where God grew my heart in, mini- um, in worship and it was incredible to see how many people would come up and just ask questions, just like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? Like, why would you pay money to come and, you know, serve our community? Why, like, why would you do this, someone at your age? And that was a time where I got to share, you know, I have been transformed within nine months. And they're just like, what do you mean? Like, transformed by who, by what? And that was just an incredible opportunity for me to be able to, you know, share with others how alive God is today. And it was incredible. Yeah, God showed me, um, showed up in a lot of ways. And um, just by being open to um, being interruptible and being, um, you know, willing to step out and be uncomfortable sometimes just bought so much fruit. Oh, that's amazing to hear. Did any blokes come for the manicures? We actually did. Yes. No way. <laughs> Crazy. Okay. And and how looking looking forward, how do you think this, this six months has changed your, your your time ahead? What are you planning for the next season and, and how you feel how do you feel that your relationship with God has grown through this? Um, so for me I can say honestly, my heart and my life has been transformed more than ever in the past six months. Um, I was very much someone that used to want to please other people, and I had a lot of compassion for other people. And these are gifts that God's given me, but I didn't know how to use them and have boundaries with them. And um, so these next, you know, after my um, transforming time at YOM, um, I've come back home and it's one of the simplest things, but it's literally impacted my life so much. It's being able to communicate and have intimacy in a relationship with God. Like, for someone that's um, a new Christian, that's a massive step for me. And that's um, something that um, I look forward to doing every day. And um, just to have my heart grow to spend time with our Savior is, um, it transforms, you know, my daily life. To want to get up and spend time with Him, it transforms my day. And um, so for me, the next step, um, I felt really called cool just to come home and be a part of youth um, group and church more. And um, but also considering, you know, um, I got offered last year to go to university and do psychology. But then I also got offered um, 
two different staffing positions back at YWAM. So that would be staffing DTSs or um, going back and helping with their youth street there. So that's also two incredible opportunities that I was given and I'm very honoured to have that in my life. So that's just something that I'm holding lightly and just processing with God before I make any big decisions. How good is this to hear? Hey, how about we pray for Bella? And uh, it's so exciting to hear her story, and we would love to commit her to God and thank her for the amazing work that God has been doing. So, Father, we just pray, Lord. Uh, we thank you again for the amazing work that you've been doing in Bella. Thank you, Lord, how you worked through Bella while she was in Europe. Thank you for the way she, she, you grew her while she was in uh, Newcastle. And we just pray, Lord, that this will only be the start, that the best will be yet to come. Father, we pray that uh, you would be growing her as a, a woman of God to be able to serve you and build your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for the ways in which she's already done that. And, uh, yeah, thank you for the time that she's investing back in here, Lord. And I pray that you will just be speaking to her and growing her in Jesus' name. Ephesians chapter 2, verses... 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We've been looking at our new series three-week series on the church and what does it mean to be part of the community of God. And uh, last week, if you were with us, we were looking at the topic of um, the church is a movement, not a museum. We were looking at how the church... I've turned it on. Sorry, it's on, I think. Okay. Um, we're looking at the church as a movement, not a museum, how we're called to be moving towards God, moving towards each other, and moving towards our community. And so, really, this question is, what does it mean to be the church? But there's a second question which we're looking at today, which is, what difference does the gospel make to life? I was uh, in a scripture class in the high school recently, and I asked this question. I said, you know, if you were a Christian, if you believed in Jesus, do you think following Jesus would make any difference to your life? And uh, a few of the kids, the students, were kind of silent for a little bit, and then they, one girl piped up and said, you know, I go to church sometimes, but I don't think it really makes any difference to my life. That's fine, she can say that. On the other hand, C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance, and if false, is of no importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. What difference does the gospel make to life? Now, I think in, the, in our community, there's two ways in which people answer this. On one hand, I'll move this across so it's a bit more. On one hand, there is the secular approach 
which says, you know what, uh, you can believe whatever you like, that's between you and God, but keep that, keep that between you and God. Faith has no connection, sorry, uh, uh, no connection between faith and life. On the other hand, there's the religious perspective. And if you were with us last week, we looked at the difference between religion and the gospel. But the religion perspective has faith imposed over life. Remember, if, if, if how we live, if rules and, and our obedience is how we're right with God, then the most important thing is obeying these rules. And so faith is imposed over life. Can you see the tension between secularism and religion. One side says there's no connection between faith and God. The other says faith is imposed over all of life. Between faith and life, I mean, sorry. Um, now, there's this tension. And on one side, the highest value is self-promotion. You see this in advertising all the time. You have, you're the best. You've got to go for it and, and work harder. You've got to get the best, be the best, have the best. And uh, if you look at it, it's much like the younger brother from last week. Remember the younger brother and the prodigal son who ran away from God, ran away from morality, and tried to fulfill his own desires himself. Self-promotion. I can satisfy my own deepest desires. On the other hand, the value of religion is self-righteousness. If how I'm right with God is on what I do, then I have to be the best and, and, and be so righteous that God will have to bless me which is just like the older brother in the parable. Now, what does that mean? Where does that leave us? As the church, where should we fit in this tension? And I want to suggest that there's a third, a gospel third way in how we can approach what difference does gospel make to life. What do I mean by this? Well, in Matthew 5, in Jesus is about to give the Sermon on the Mount. It's a pretty famous passage, the Beatitudes. And Jesus starts with this. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You probably know the passage. And Jesus, most commentators agree that Jesus isn't talking about being physically poor. He's talking about something else. And just like physical poverty is having no assets before God... Being poor in spirit is saying, I have no... Sorry, physical assets. I'm, physical poverty is having no physical assets. Nothing to your name. You, you've got nothing. You're poor. Being spiritually poor, poor in spirit, is having no assets before God. God, I don't have anything. I have no reason for you to bless me. I'm, I've got no righteousness of my own. I've got no ability to save myself. If I'm going to be saved, then God needs to do all the work for me, which is what he does in Jesus. Our passage, which we read before, says, for he himself is our peace. And so the starter point for the gospel third way is we realize we are poor in spirit. We realize we have no assets before God. It's not like... Um, I think you could say being rich in spirit is saying, uh, I, can, I can save myself. I have what it takes. Or maybe being middle class in spirit is, you know, I need Jesus, but I'm still a good person. Um, 
I just need Jesus to get me across the line. No, I have nothing before God. I'm more wicked and sinful than I could ever dare imagine. And yet, I'm more loved than I could ever dare dream of. And so the gospel gives us a new identity. It tells us, Against the self-promotion, you can satisfy your own desires. And against the self-righteousness, you're good enough so that God will have to bless you. No, I realize I have nothing and therefore everything I receive is a gift. I receive a new identity. I am the beloved of God and I receive that as a gift. I get a new identity. But not only that, in our passage in Ephesians, um, Paul starts off saying he himself is our peace, he's made the two one, but he goes on to say, and Paul says, Paul says, um, he says, for, for him, he did this to make one new identity, one new humanity out of the two. He didn't just die to save us and send us to heaven. Jesus died to show us a new way to be human. Um, and how we be the church is not just what we believe, but it's a fundamentally different way to be human. Now, what does that look like? And I want to talk about four ways in which the gospel shows us how we're the church and how that changes our lives. Firstly, in relationships, then in how we look at the poor and the outcast, how we look at our money, and how we look at our work. Firstly, relationships. Now, if we look at the passage in Ephesians again, Ephesians 2, Paul says, For he made the two one. Those who are far away from God, the outsiders, and those who are very close to God, the insiders, are both equal before God. We both realize we have nothing before God, and yet we're both equally loved. Christ died to save all of us. One new humanity. And in doing so, he tore down the wall. Our passage says that he tore down the the wall of hostility that divided us. Now, what does that mean for our relationships? Uh, Amelia Taylor gave gave a great talk at the Vine Church last week about forgiveness and how the gospel calls us to radical forgiveness. And when we think about that, I think we set up walls of unforgiveness with all sorts of people, don't we? Oh, I'm not going to talk to that person. They, they hurt me and so a wall goes up. Or, oh, that person didn't pay me back for the last week and a wall goes up there. Or maybe it's not unforgiveness but difference. That, um, that person's different to me. They talk different. They look different. I'm not really going to go and talk to them. Or um, maybe it's a different socioeconomic group, someone who is, uh, dresses differently to us. Whatever it is, we set up walls. We do naturally as humans. But if we believe the gospel, that I'm completely saved by grace, by a new identity, by gift, then that changes the way we look at our relationships. How can we possibly keep walls up between other people if Christ has torn down the wall between us and God? And so my question for you is this. What walls are up between you and other people? What are the walls up? And what people are you talking to or not talking to? Because if we're the church, 
Being the church shows us a new way to be human, a new community where there cannot be these same walls. Now, being the church, my whiteboard marker is running out. I'll try and get another one. Let's see if this one will work. Here we go. Here we go. Being, uh, being the church means a new way to look at the poor and the outcast. I think a lot of people in our community, and probably in general, have an idea about those who are poor like, um, you know, some people just need to pull themselves together. They just need to try harder and, you know, get a job, go out, work harder, and, and then things will change. But if Jesus said that to me, I would never get into heaven. If Jesus said, Noah just needs to pull himself together, try harder, and um, just get himself together, then, then things would change. I would never be saved, and none of us would. And if that's how we're saved, we realize we're poor in spirit, and we have nothing to offer God, and yet God offered it all to us. If we are poor in spirit, how can we possibly look down on those who are physically poor? In fact, Jesus prioritized the poor and the outcast. And so as a church, being the church should mean prioritizing, being a community where people who are different to us, who are poor, who are outcasts, where are socially unacceptable, should feel like they belong here. And so my question is, are we a community that's doing that? Next, being the church means a new way we look at our money. This is a fun one. <laughs> Tim Keller, who I talked about last week, um, likes to talk a lot about the idols of our heart, how we set up things in life that, um, that we look to to get our significance. If I had that, then I'd be good enough. If I had that, then I'd feel like I've made it. Then I'd, I'd feel significant. But when we believe the gospel, our identity changes, Right? The problem is that I often don't know what the idols of my heart really are. I'm often blind to what they are. How, do I, how can I know what those idols are? And it's how we spend our money. What is it that you find impossibly easy to spend money on? Just You can do it at the drop of a hat. <laughs> yeah. For Tim Keller, it was books. Uh, he, he could buy books just like that. Uh, wouldn't even have to second think about it because his identity was tied up in being smart, in, being, uh, in knowing more than other people, in, um, in how he could quote people and quote the latest books. That was his identity. And so spying, spending money on books was just effortless. For someone else, it might be clothes. You can buy clothes just like that. Don't even have to second think about it. Because our identity might be tied up in how we look. If, I, if people just thought I was beautiful, then I'd be good enough. Then I'd be acceptable. Then I'd have made it. Or for some people, it's not what you spend your money, but you find it effortless to save money. Maybe that's showing that our security is in money. That if, if I have enough in the bank balance, then I'll be secure. Then I'll be good enough. How do we spend our money? What do we find effortless? to spend our money on. Because if we have received a new identity in Christ, if, if I'm, I'm so the beloved of God, I'm infinitely loved by God, and that will never change, it's, it's fixed because of what Christ has done, 
not what I've done. If that's the gospel, then it means my identity is freed from those things and my money is freed. I'm, I'm not holding on to my money because it's the, the way in which I get the thing that's most significant to me. No. My identity is fixed on Christ. My heart is secure. Therefore, I'm free to be generous to others. So, the gospel shows us a new way to, to have relationships. The walls are torn down. It shows us a new way to see the poor and the outcast. If I'm poor in spirit, then I've got to love those who are poor. And if the gospel shows us a new way to be human with our money, then I'm called to, to let go of the idols and to set my identity in Jesus and be generous. And finally, the gospel shows us a new way to look at our work. I think a lot of people have their identity tied up in work as well. We, we feel like when things are going well, I've made it. I'm bloated with pride. And when things are not going well, when, when things are falling apart, I'm crushed inside because my identity is tied up with what I do. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of occupations, especially those in which um, you're, you're doing it all the time, that this is a problem for us, right? And what the gospel does, if I believe that I've received a new identity by grace, not by what I do, if that's, if that's true of me, then to be the church means that I have something that keeps me from being overthrown either by success or failure. I have something that, that means whatever happens, I'm secure in my relationship with Christ and therefore I'm free to work as, as best as I can. The gospel also shows me that I'm working not for, for my boss, but for the Lord. Whatever I do is not working for myself or for others, but it's actually work for God and serving God. And if that's the case, the most menial, the most seemingly insignificant work has meaning. I might just be washing dishes or scrubbing the floor, but it has meaning because I'm doing it for God. Whatever I'm doing, it has meaning. And on the other hand, I won't be crushed by the most high-pressure jobs because my identity isn't there. It's in Christ. And finally, working gives me a new set of moralities. When people's identity is tied up in their work, they'll be tempted to cut corners because they have to make it. They have to get there. And it won't be about how well or, or how, um, how morally right I do my job. It will be about if I can be the most successful because my identity is tied up in my work. But if the gospel gives me a new identity, then I'm freed to actually look like Jesus, to, to work in such a way that people will take notice and look up and say, wow, there's something different about her or him. Do you see it? Do you see, if the gospel is true, then against the secular idea of there's no connection between faith and life, that, that I'm just trying to get out there for myself, and against the religion of I need to follow the rules, I need to be right with God, no, the gospel shows us a new way to be human. And if that's true, it should change our relationships, it changes the way we see the poor, it changes our money, and it changes our work. Is that true of us? Is that true of how we are as a community? So that what 
Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2 would be true of us. He says, live such good lives among the pagans so that though they accuse you, they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Peter's saying, live, live such gospel-centered lives, lives that reflect Jesus, so that even though they'll disagree with us, they'll look at what we're doing and think we're stupid, or that we're wrong, or that we're not working hard enough, or we're not sold out enough. No, they'll see Jesus in us. Even though they accuse us, Peter says they will accuse us, but they'll see Jesus in us and they'll glorify God. Would that be true of us? Imagine what it would look like for us to be a church that looks like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you saved us by grace. We have nothing to bring before you. I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing. And yet you gave it all. Thank you, Jesus, that I received a new identity. I am the beloved of God. And you've shown me a new way to be human. And Lord, if that's the case, would you show me how to be the church? Would you show us how to radically change our relationships? How to radically change how we look at the poor and the outcast? And how, Lord, you call us to see money and work with new eyes. We can't do it ourselves. We need your spirit in us to show us. Lord, it's all by grace. What a gift. And we give it all back to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.